0: Thank you, Dave. It was beautiful. Once again, I appreciate you leading us in that way. Well, we've been talking about the gospel all week. Thank you for being here again and diving into this with us. We started off by talking about this incredible description of who Jesus is in 1 Peter chapter 2 as the precious cornerstone for us on Sunday. And then we looked at who we are in light of our saving faith in Jesus, that He changes everything. And starting with knowing who God is and then knowing who we are in Christ, we walked through the basic gospel last night. These these five major points and a sixth application of it. The the major points being that God created us in His image for His glory through relationship with Himself. That frames everything properly. And then... We talked about the fact that we don't live under his authority. We all have this terrible problem the Bible calls sin of rebellion against God. And God, as a holy God, should judges sin and rebellion and begins a process right after human beings rebelled to save us. And he does that through sending Jesus to take our place in his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection. And we then recognize that we have life in Him if we turn from our sin and trust Him in saving faith. And we, we ended our time last night talking about point six, though, of, of two ways to live. There really are two very starkly different ways to live, God's way or our way, where we're on our own little gods. And now tonight I want to think about a little bit of the implications of this, radical loving grace of God for God so loved the world he gave his only son it's been said that you can give without loving but you can't love without giving I give without loving quite a bit Um, I give often without being happy about it like to the IRS every year I I frequently find myself giving not wanting to do it but having to do it and that's never the way God loves he he loves and he always gives and so he initiates this god doesn't doesn't do it doesn't send his son so that he can love us he sends a son because he does and the exhaustive love of god and the amazing grace of god we know that him amazing grace but sometimes i wonder how amazing i really find his grace You can get used to it. You can presume upon it. And so understanding the grace of God truly as it is, it really does require a transformation in our hearts. I realized quite a while ago that there's something in me that hates grace. As completely as insane as that is in light of how I am desperately needy of grace, it's amazing that there's something in my heart that actually wars against grace and doesn't like it and actually deep down i often would prefer to earn god's love and be worthy of it and demonstrate it i i um i I see and hear christians actually emphasizing to each other sometimes that we are worthy of god's love and that's just not true Our worthiness is not the basis of God's love for us. God is. God's character is. And and we have a therapeutic way of talking about God's love for us that really is a self-help approach rather than a true grace of God approach to it. And, And it can be difficult for us to come to terms with that, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We had nothing to offer God but our sin. We hated him. That's how the Bible describes our condition before him. And so, so we desperately need grace. And there's something in me that doesn't like it. I actually think, for a long time, I thought the offense of the cross that the Bible talks about is a naked, bleeding man being executed in public. And that's highly offensive, obviously. But I think really what the Bible's getting at when, it, when Paul talks to the Corinthians about the offense of the cross is that it completely defies self righteousness it completely defies self-sufficiency which especially to an american mentality is highly offensive we hate that we, we hate it to be truly grace and the fact is is if you think you have to earn one percent of god's love satan wins in your life he wins just 1%. If, if you think Jesus does 99% of what you need him to do because God loves that much, and you have to add that 1% or maybe 2% or maybe 5%, then we miss the whole thing. We completely miss it. And so, so to realize the radical, wonderful, amazing, overwhelming grace of God and the love God has for us is incredibly important. And please don't think of love just as a covenant commitment God has, although it's that. Please make sure you see his love as a deeply affectionate thing. Even a fondness for you, even in your sin that continues to be a battle for you, God has a love for you that I think you can say is a fondness. He doesn't have any buyer's remorse with his covenant with you. He doesn't sort of wish he could get out of it somehow after he saw who you really are. Right? We can have those experiences on a human level, right? I see it happen every year. Two college students will meet each other. They have a great friendship. And they decide, hey, sophomore year, let's be roommates. And they think it's going to work out wonderfully. And it's actually, I think, the majority of the time, friendship doesn't necessarily translate into roommate. Right? And and so it can go very badly, even though you had a wonderful friendship beforehand. I, I didn't realize who you really were, right? up close, living together, and I don't like you anymore. It can easily happen, and we can tend to think that's how God must be with me, because he's finally gotten an up-close view in this covenant relationship, and he wishes he could get out of it, but he put it in his word that he will never leave us or forsake us, and so he's stuck with us. And this book I'm writing, one of the chapters is, I think Christians should stop saying, I have to love you, but I don't have to like you. It's a very common expression now the tr- like all these expressions that i wish we would stop saying in the book have truth in them or else we wouldn't say them right and what's the truth in i have to love you but i don't have to like you the truth is very often on the way to truly loving someone fully there's a whole lot of dislike involved <laughs> but we stay committed to loving them. But please don't think of love as something that is merely a commitment, that has no affection, has no tenderness, has no genuine appreciation and enjoyment of a person. Now, the problem is we often love that way. I know I do. I I often love because I know it's the right thing to do and I'm committed to it, even though if it were up to me, I would not even acknowledge this person anymore for whatever reason. Even our enemies we're supposed to love. And so we have got to be people who commit to loving, but also commit to loving one another is what the Bible says with brotherly affection, like we're family, like, like from the heart, it says, love each other from the heart with, with brotherly affection. And so, so that doesn't sound like committed love without any affection or without any, any, any fondness. I think it's vital for us to see God's love as a profoundly affectionate thing. The Bible says that he delights over us with singing. And he he views us the way a bridegroom views the bride. That's an incredible way to describe God's affection for us. I've officiated hundreds of weddings. and, And I know the bride coming through the back is a pretty awesome sight. But I, I would argue that homeboy standing next to me is a pretty good thing to look at as well. Because the groom is usually beaming as the bride comes down the aisle. You know, etiquette says you look at her the whole ceremony, but we try to break that when I officiate weddings and look at Jesus actually and her as well, yes. But, but I, I encourage you to look at the groom. And that's how God describes himself. He creates marriage as this image of his relationship with his people, and so I, I would love for us to take the love of God and understand in a way where there there's a tender affection for his people that that would give you a sound night's sleep every night. That God likes you doesn't mean you're exactly like Jesus yet, but but he he knows where you're heading. He sees. The image of Christ being conformed in you. He sees the image of God in you even before you're a believer. That's how we're able to love even our enemies who hate Jesus, even because the image of God is in them. And so, so God likes you. God God thinks you're funny, in a good way, in a good way. He He does. Have you ever noticed that somebody can be really funny, but if you don't like them, you don't find them at all funny? Have you ever noticed that? Very interesting. And if some, you, you can have a really good friend who you just love, and they don't have to be very funny for you to find them very funny. I read an author once who said that among all my friends, I can find no common denominator except this. They all make me laugh. And I think, I think you make God laugh in a good way, in the best possible way, that there's a tenderness of affection that he has for you that we've got to appreciate. He loves you as much as he can he can't love his love doesn't fluctuate it's not sort of on a continuum he loves you in the sun he loves you particularly and uniquely i will never forget i was watching a detective show i think i was like eight and i was with my mother and we were watching kojak i remember kojak my mother loves kojak still she watches all the time and tells me about it but Who loves you, baby, was his (laughs) thing with a lollipop. But I was watching Kojak with my mother, and they brought this guy into the police station, and they were fingerprinting him. And I said, Mom, what are they doing? Why are they putting those smudges on that guy? And she said, oh, they're fingerprinting him. And I said, "What? tell me about that. And she said, oh, yeah, that's how you identify who people are. And I said, well, how, how does that work? And she said, oh, yeah, no two people have, ever have, or will ever have the same fingerprints. I still haven't gotten over that since I was eight when my mother told me that. I just, I still to this day cannot believe that. Isn't that incredible that God makes us that particular and unique? It's just an awesome reality to think about a human being and to be able to treasure every individual God's ever made in that beautiful uniqueness. And that's how he sees us. There will never be another one of you ever, never has been, never will be. There's uniqueness to that. I I think it was around the same time my mother told me that no snowflake, no two snowflakes are the same. I'm still uh, wowed by that. It's just incredible. But God loves us that way. So when we really grab a hold of the grace of God and we really ground our understanding of who we are in Christ by the grace and love of God, it changes everything. And in many ways, the Christian life is fundamentally understanding the amazing grace of God more and more every day. That's what it is. And I'm very concerned about a growing emphasis on sort of authenticity to the point where the simplicity of the gospel doesn't seem sophisticated enough. I hear people say, like, don't don't just give Sunday school answers. Well, if Jesus is the Sunday school answer, that's usually the right one. And there's a fear of, of, as we said last night, sounding simplistic, and I, I don't want us to be simplistic, I want us to think through things, but it's incredibly important that we not lose the, the simplicity in the best sense of the word of the gospel. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Um, so my wife Donna, she, she became a Christian at 19. She trusted Jesus when she was a, a freshman in college, and her life did a 180, and she's the only Christian in her family at the time, and, and she, it, one of the most beautiful things about my wife is she knows deeply that she's forgiven, and that she's been forgiven much. She, she understands the gospel applied to her life. I mean, it, it's rare she'll talk about God saving her without being very moved by it. I love that about her. Well, about five years after she became a Christian, we went to a Christian school, and she started working with student development. And it, it was her first week in a Christian context. Like I said, we grew up in New England where there were very few Christians. And now she's surrounded by Christians who were all Christians in this big Christian community. It wasn't Biola. It was another school. And we were there, and she went on a retreat after only being on campus at this Christian school for a week. And they started off the retreat with a really cool exercise. They gave them magazines and all sorts of things, crafty sorts of things, and shoeboxes. And they said, we're going to introduce ourselves to one another, and the way we're going to do it is we're going to put sort of the surface things about us on the outside of the shoebox, but the really meaningful internal things about us on the inside of the shoebox, because we want to get past the just the outside, front stage view of who we present ourselves as to really who we are. So they all set about making their shoeboxes, cutting out things. And, and so on the outside of Donna's shoebox, she put a picture of of a skier because she grew up skiing and loves to ski and a tennis racket because she plays tennis and loves tennis and mountains and trees, which she's doing her seminars on every Wednesday because she loves trees and she loves forests and evergreens. And and, uh, and and so she put all these hobby sorts of things, interest sorts of things on the, ins- on the outside of the shoebox. On the inside of the shoebox, she took some cotton and put it in there. She. She pasted a picture of a candle in there, and that was it. And when they went around to talk about their shoeboxes, she described all the sort of interests and hobbies and activities she likes to do. But then she said, I put this cotton in here because of Jesus, I am as white as snow, and I'm pure. And I put this candle in here inside because the Holy Spirit lives in me. And those were the two things that were most weighted in me as I thought about who I am on the inside, you know, the real me. Well, she had no idea that the response to her shoebox was going to be so negative. It's unbelievable. She's with these people in student development who are very ministry-minded people, and a lot of them have been at it a long time. And she really got hammered for her shoebox. She said, and actually, the woman leading the whole exercise said, Donna, we're really gonna need you to be more authentic. We're really gonna need you to be vulnerable and honest. And not just give the pat answers Christians give about who they really are. Donna was in tears. Because she had probably been a Christian less time than all these other people. And it was profound to her that in Christ she was pure and the Holy Spirit actually lived inside of her. That was the overwhelming reality of when she thought about who she was. That came home to her and she put it in her shoebox and she got completely judged for it and it wasn't authentic it it was too simplistic it was the sunday school answers and and it was the first time in her life she she saw the way christians can be especially ones who take ministry seriously and know it's messy and know it's complicated right And they can lose, we can lose a sense of the beautiful, truthful simplicity of what it means to actually be forgiven and actually belong to Jesus by faith. And and she she it, it was actually it it continued to be a struggle with her the whole time. And and so I see things like that happen, and I'm concerned that we have a beautiful resting satisfaction in the finished work of christ and that we never grow weary of hearing things like jesus died for your sins and he rose from the dead and when you trust him you can be pure in the sight of god and the holy spirit lives in you i know it doesn't sound cool and innovative (laughs) and a five-year-old can understand and say those things and so we can have a disdain for the simplicity of the gospel we've got to maintain i know life can be messy I, i know it can feel complex so often but in those times i think we need to bear down on what we know to be true that some of us have known since we were five and it's still true we need to hold on to that all right let me pause anything comments questions So good to see you here, Sammy boy. That's my son Sam. He's a great kid. I love that boy. Any anything? Yeah. Tell me your name. Brian. Brian. I think it's significant what you talked about earlier, that basically all the other religions of the world are based on earning our way there rather than relying on the mercy and grace. And that's like you said, that that's in us. That's right. Tennis. That's right. It's so true. All the other religions of the world are what we do to approach God. Christianity alone is this one about what God has done to bring us to himself. It's the difference between what we do and what he's done. Radical difference. Huge difference. And I think one of the great challenges is there's something in us that finds legalism so appealing. It's interesting. We find legalism appealing because we do it. Just tell me the things I need to do. Five pillars of Islam right tell me the things i need to do i'll do it i'll accomplish it and i'll deserve the credit for it but it's interesting the equal equal and opposite problem is i'm going to do whatever i want to do i'm not going to answer to anybody and both of those are grounded in being our own gods and religions there are religions out there that will offer you both options and and to realize that I, i i love meadows who loves meadows in here I, for years, wondered why I love... You love meadows. <laughs> I know. I love. We just went to... Um, oh, the meadow in Sequoia, the incredible meadow with the tree. Crescent Meadow. Yes, we went to Crescent Meadow. I love, I love skiing around Princess Meadow. And for years, I said, why, why do I love meadows so much? Do you know why I think deep down, psychologically, most of us love meadows? Because we were created for freedom within boundaries and a meadow just beautifully communicates that doesn't it freedom within boundaries we're set free to run through that meadow but there are boundaries around it there's a safety in that outward boundary of trees that is just so so comforting as well as the freedom within those boundaries just beautiful yeah it's the radical difference grace is the radical difference anything else thoughts yeah Hey, Bill. Just to build on what you were saying about obedience, there is comfort because the old song, trust and obey, yes. it's much more difficult to trust. Yes. If you know what to do, you just go do it. But to somehow trust and wait goes against almost everything. Yeah, and, it, and isn't it interesting that trust, just as naturally as it can be, leads to obedience. If you, if you If you're resting in him the n- the most natural and obvious thing is you you wait you do you do what he says you you live within those boundaries thank you bill very helpful yeah paula. hi paula hi. Amen. Yeah, you're so right. It's so important to realize the ways we've been influenced. And you're right. What's more American than pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do it yourself? And and that is completely antithetical to the Christian way of not just starting with grace and continuing with the grace of God, but also needing other people to be who God created us to be. We were created to learn and live interdependently and not independently. And independence. I remember learning about it. In, in high school, uh, rugged individualism is this American mentality that, that is so not the way God designed us to grow. Even I remember hearing the first, first time the word townie. You know what a townie is? Somebody who lives in the town they grew up in as an adult. It's a de- derogatory term. He's a townie. He never, he never really branched out. He never left home and left it all behind and pulled up his moorings and went out, manifest destiny, go west, young man. It's true, like, if you actually stay home, I just gotta throw this, I read an article a couple years ago about traveling. So we all assume travel is an inherently good thing and and a desired thing, it's something you should even save money for and aspire to do, and you think about retiring and we're gonna travel and all this stuff. Do you know, for the... all of human history, except about the last 150 years, 200 years max, travel was a really bad thing. Travel meant there was a famine, a war, a conquering takeover, something. The goal was to stay home. <laughs> the goal was to stay home. And if you had to leave home, it's because we had no potatoes, and there was a famine, and we all, we all have to leave. Starting with the Garden of Eden, right? the, the idea was to stay in the garden. And, and having to leave was a punishment it was a bad thing and it's actually since aristocracy started traveling so they could marry other aristocratic families and and that's how it all started and then the travel industry started where we we go in groups and we insulate ourselves from the things that are actually helpful to us when we travel like having to interact with non-people in the same demographic as we are in the one bus we all travel in and and so we don't get sick, don't want to get sick, don't want to be uncomfortable. And so we travel in these air-controlled buses, and it's not actually what travel actually brings to us. And so staying home was the ideal for all of human history. And, and it's just a relatively new thing that thinking, the, the really admirable thing is to, to leave home instead of being at the place of security and with your family. So, good. Anything else? Good stuff. Yeah. Okay. A superstar at Viola. He said, "What can we do about the inclination to to not appreciate simplicity, to to try to run away from the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of truth, and what we believe." yeah I, I i'm trying to think about what's fueling this need to be different innovative sophisticated to the point where like those quotes i was reading last night you're not even sure what rob bell is talking about when he uh, talks about lofty language and finding the gospel is you know a faraway land that you th- like Oprah asked him in this interview I talked about, how do you define God? And you know what he said? He said, God is that beautiful song you hear in the next room and you recognize it even though you've never heard it before. And and again, I'm so aware that people hear that and go, whoa, that is really cool. And I'm just... What in the world are you talking about right maybe i'm dumb but you're not making any sense to me and i we're in this weird age where incoherence is just the norm it is and you know those of us old enough to remember when there was some sort of basic expectation that people have coherence when they talk right that they don't say things that are completely disconnected from reality but it's not like that anymore and so, so it can be so confusing, but, but I, I would say. You know, it's interesting, this idea of your first love. It, or mountaintop experiences. It's so interesting, and I realize that that kids can come up here and they can have these these whirlwind one week romances that feel so real to them, and then end up being three days later like, what was I thinking, sort of thing, and. And similar sorts of things can happen in a religious experience in these sorts of settings, too. So you can get really cynical very easily that God's at work in the ways he is. And you don't want to be gullible. But at the same time, you don't want to be cynical. And I I think there's a cynicism and a kind of authenticity and a desire to be seen as a thinker and to be seen as... Someone who doesn't accept things just because um, that's what you were taught at some point in your life. To the point where it really does become about an image we're trying to project about ourselves. That's why I think people bash the church. To distance themselves from the bad things in the church. And in the meantime, not appreciate the incredible, awesome beauty of the church as a God-created reality that the gates of hell won't prevail against. Like, I've actually heard people say, when you're dealing with someone in crisis, don't quote scripture. You know, Eric Uzinski's dad was in the hospital for a long time. He had a terrible accident, and Ed was here last week. And, and I remember he told me after he had been laid up for months. He was basically in bed for six solid months after this terrible car accident. And he said hundreds of people had visited me in the past past six months, hundreds, both in the hospital and at his home, and he said, and almost all of them were Christians who came to visit me, and many of them were in ministry, and he said, but I started thinking about all the people who came, and he said, I'm really struggling for hope, for for uh, peace, for, for just a, a confidence that God's at work in, in all of this these injuries and what my future is going to look like and he said i realized that of the hundreds of people who came to visit me the ones who actually opened their bibles and read scripture to him with confidence with a desire to encourage them from the word of god and from the promises of god he said there were five and he said three of the five apologized before they read the bible he said you know i know you know all this and i know it can sound like i'm job's comforters here just telling you what i know what you know is true but you know it is the word of god so let me read it that's so interesting isn't it that that we're so afraid of sounding simplistic that we don't bring people the actual word of god because maybe we think our opinions are better i don't know and so i think i think not by an ideas of authenticity not uh, buying into ideas of sophistication, being a critical thinker, and needing new ways to say things instead of the way the, God, the way God said it in His Word, I think those are are big temptations, Caleb, for especially your generation. I don't know. Can you relate to what I'm saying? In these, yeah. Okay. Great. Okay. Let me let me make some points, Nolan. Here we go. Uh, if we really get the gospel which I think this is a great verse. There, there are so many passages that we could really camp on for the gospel, obviously. But, but there's, this one, I think, if you're going to pick a verse, this one is a great one. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So here we have Jesus, the God-man, suffering once for sins. And I, I think that suffering is not just his cross, it's not just the cross and the garden jesus entire life was a sacrifice his entire life was a suffering he learned obedience from the things he suffered the author to hebrews says and so he suffered once for sins his whole life was a sacrificial love for us the righteous that's jesus never broke god's law never sinned once for the unrighteous don't even Begin to think about all the sins I needed him to obey in my place for, that he might bring us to God. I love that because we don't just end up forgiven and righteous. We end up in the very presence of a holy God. That's the goal of Jesus' work, not just to get us in a better state, but to get us into the presence of God. And that's what he accomplishes. Now, if we really get this, these are going to be the implications. The gospel is a call to look at Christ and not myself. We are constantly, even in church contexts, even in Christian contexts, we're constantly looking at ourselves. It's just our natural instinct. It's just our natural inclination to constantly looking at ourselves and be self-absorbed and self-conscious as a result. And that is a prison. Self-absorption is a prison. It feels safe to be self-focused, but it's actually a prison that we live in. Because if our eyes aren't fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and they're fixed on ourselves, we will not give ourselves the confidence we need to walk into each day with hope and joy and peace and confidence and boldness. And so, so I think I quoted Martin Lord Jones last night, for every one look at ourselves, we should take 10 looks at Christ, and we tend to have that exactly reversed. And so to be Christ-focused and Christ-centered and Christ-founded is so vital for us in ourselves. Two, the gospel's a call to repudiate all efforts to beautify myself before God or to improve on Jesus' work for me. Remember, I was on an airplane one time reading my Bible, and this woman looked across and said, what are you reading? I said, I'm reading the Bible. And she said, oh, I read self-help books too. And I said, actually... Ma'am, this is the opposite of a self-help book. It helps me, but not for myself. (laughs) And self-help books are the the wildly best-selling books there are. I don't know if you know that. People love to try to figure out ways to better themselves, which can be very good and very helpful. I'm not minimizing the helpfulness they can provide. But self-help, it couldn't be more different than Christ help. I don't don't want to build my self-esteem. I want to build Christ esteem. It doesn't mean he does it uh, independent of who he's made me to be or you to be as a particular unique person, but he brings all the beauty you need. He brings all the righteousness you need. Everything you need comes from him. And so all our efforts to beautify ourselves, to, to project an image, to do all of these things that we will do to... To, to try to get approval from God and from other people, we can just dispense with. That's why Paul called all his self-righteousness filthy rags, garbage, refuse, of, of zero worth. And, and we tend to think of that as what Paul did before he became a Christian. I, I think that's the wrong way to look at that. It, it's not his life as a Pharisee before Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. That's any self-effort that he even still continues to do. So Anything he thinks is going to earn God's approval is filthy rags. It's it's garbage. And again, it doesn't mean we don't have lives of obedience. It doesn't mean we don't have lives of improving, but utterly dependent on God for his glory and not originating in ourselves. And so... uh, Three, the gospel offers me the prospect of applying the specific beauty of Christ to my life in specific areas of sin. And so when I seek to combat sin in my life, I think it's incredibly important that we apply the beauty of Christ to that specific area of sin. So I've battled some sins my entire life on a daily basis, impatience being one of them. Anger that can grow out of that impatience. Just ask Sam, he'll tell you. I have family here to back up my sinful problems right here. And uh, a, a quick tongue that, that has to apologize for things that come out of that impatience and that anger. I mean I I could go on a critical spirit. I if this is not Eric therapy time you can bill me later. But but <laughs> these are battles I fight on a daily basis and as long as I can remember. my mother said um, that I was born mad what she said she she said that when I was a a baby playing with blocks if they fell over I never cried I would look for something to hit and and so you want to talk about sin that I didn't choose in that say people talk a lot about "Well, I didn't choose this well I could say that a lot about a lot of sin in my life on one sense I think there's always choice going on somewhere but there are certain things i think we just need to recognize yeah i kind of booted up that way <laughs> right i can't point to a family dynamic or some experience of trauma or or anything like that no i just kind of came out of the in, out of the womb like this and and that's what sin is like right it's it's embedded in us it's not just we sit around and think ah oh, today i'm gonna be impatient no it sort of comes pretty naturally it's amazing how people think if something comes naturally It must be okay and from God. (laughs) I don't think that's true at all. Um, I can point to a lot of things that feel very natural, but from God's perspective, aren't according to the nature of humanity made in His image as He created us to be. It's amazing how we define natural as what comes naturally rather than what God says is according to our nature as those made in His image. So four, um, we apply the gospel-specific areas of sin in our lives. We don't just seek forgiveness. We we seek the beautification Christ brings to us. And then four, the gospel's the basis for humility, right? I mean, how absurd that people would ever get the impression that we're arrogant as Christians, that we're prideful Christian. That's absurd. It's like pineapple and pizza. They should never go together, right, ever. Ever? Oh, stop! You opinionated people. Uh, wow, that's the biggest response I've gotten all week. That's amazing. No pineapple. Go to Hawaii if you want pineapple. All right, um, you don't go. To, you don't go to Florence to get pineapple on your pizza. So, do you know they? There's a. Pr- you agree with me? Thank you, Beverly. You. But your friends. You got to work this out. Listen, <laughs> listen. Th- th- do you guys know Kathy and Beverly? How many years have you been coming to the Hume Teaching Series? Forty-some-odd 40 years. Forty-some-odd years, 50. yeah. We should be a lot better off. <laughs> she said we should be a lot better off than we are. We've been coming almost 50 years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, I, I just adore these two women. These, these two women are so brilliant. In, in, right now, in your big yeah. graces. Sh- yes, yes. Um, but I don't like this disagreement over the pizza thing at all. I think, I think you need to work, you need to work that out. Oh, that's, well, you agree to disagree, right? Go your separate ways. That's good. Do you know there's a prank show that did, did a prank in, in Pisa, actually, you know, leaning Tower Pisa, which some people would say is the best pizza in Italy. They did a prank show where they had a pizza delivery man deliver pizza to people in Pisa, and it had pineapple on it. These Italians lost their minds. Like they threw the pizza at the delivery guy, slice by slice, telling them to get out of there. So those people know what they're talking about. All right. Um, yes, it, it, the base for humility. How absurd that Christians, and we can be arrogant people very easily. I certainly can be. We can be so prideful. It, but, but a prideful Christian... Humble and Christian should just go together as much as possible. When we realize what Paul says, what do you have that hasn't been given to you? Nothing. You've got nothing that isn't given to you. Nothing. Not an atom, not a molecule, not a breath, nothing apart from God's creative and sustaining presence. And so this is as humbling as anything. Why would I want others to be impressed with me? I want others to see Jesus, which means they need to know I'm a sinner covered by his righteousness. I was just listening, as I often do before I go teach or preach anywhere. I listen to Casting Crowns, who I absolutely love. They still have a clear doctrine of sin in their music and a glory of God focus in their music. Quite refreshing. I love it. And, And they have a song that I just listened to before I came over here called Nobody right and the the song just goes i'm a nobody wanting to tell everybody about somebody who saved my soul right it's just beautiful and and he must increase i must decrease how about that john has this flourishing ministry and his followers come to him really concerned about the competition named jesus and they say people are leaving our ministry to go follow his and john says that's how it's supposed to be He must increase, I must decrease. To truly believe that. And Casting Crowns has another song. It says, I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't want people to remember me. I want them to remember Jesus, only Jesus. And if that's the focus, I don't, can you imagine the Apostle Paul starting a ministry and calling it Paul of Tarsus Ministries? Now, I'm really not trying to condemn anybody who's done that. I have a hard time with it. I can't imagine that Paul would be cool with that or any of the apostles, right? Or, or Jesus, quite frankly. And so, so we we have to seek humility. Why would I want others to be impressed with me? I want others to see Jesus, which means they need to know I'm a sinner covered by his righteousness. Now, it is absolutely true that we are intended to be examples. We are intended to be people who show the the power and the transforming work of Christ in our lives. But I think we need to be careful with that because I, I do think as we are on our way home, we also need to recognize that we will often be examples of people who desperately need a Savior. <laughs> right? Maybe the number one excuse people have for rejecting Christianity to the church is Christians are a bunch of hypocrites christians are a mess you know christians do terrible things and we need to we need to feel the shame when we fail to give a good example to the world of who we are but we shouldn't too quickly run from just acknowledging yeah we will fail you we will disappoint you we'll hurt you probably we'll 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 maybe even uh, do things we need to repent of but but we desperately need a savior. And, and we don't want to so grab a hold of being examples that we lose the fact that we need to be a good examples of how we repent. We need to be really good examples of how we own our sin and recognize how desperately we need Jesus. That's it, Nolan, for those, right? I think I just have four. Yeah. Yes, sir. Okay. A- any comments or questions? Thoughts about anything? Thanks, yeah. You know, what's interesting about schaefer he had a very different approach to ministry when he was in the States than when he had in Europe. He waded into a lot of those very philosophical issues far more in his European context than he did here. Um, In his European context, people considered him, uh, like you're saying, a, a bit too philosophical in his approach to things. People accused him of being a fundamentalist when he came back home during the fundamentalist, contra- fundamentalist uh, controversies that were denying the inerrancy of Scripture and those sorts of things. So some of that was was a contextual decision he made to minister in a particular way and weighed into particular issues because that's where the people he was trying to reach were. And so it, to critique Schaeffer's phil- philosophy of ministry does require sort of when in his ministry and where in his ministry to do that in a good way. Um, but yeah, I think, I think realizing where people are and really, it, you know, it's a cliche, never question someone's motives. That's not in the Bible at all. It's amazing how many cliches we think have all sorts of authority that maybe not aren't true. But, but I think really figuring out where people are coming from and what are the legitimate obstacles, the barriers to coming to saving faith in Jesus And then taking those seriously, but not letting those obstacles always set the agenda can be the challenge. So if someone's really wrestling through deep philosophical intellectual issues, I want to be able to help them in that. But also not let them use those sorts of things as just defeaters that aren't actually defeaters, uh, as excuses that aren't really excuses I I know a man who was in youth ministry for many years and he would send his students off to universities and they'd come back with all of these quandaries philosophically the problem of evil all these different things and and over the years when the guy when the guy would come back after his freshman year at Columbia and say he's got all these philosophical problems with Christianity you know what he started doing he started saying what's her name And the guy said, what are you talking about? He you know, he's got all these intellect. He goes, no, well, what's her name? He said, what are you talking about? He said, the woman you're sleeping with, what's her name? And the guy'd say, how'd you know? <laughs> and he said, well, I've seen this happen before. You know, y- you want to have this kind of relationship with a woman you met at college, and so suddenly all of these philosophical and theological issues are g- perplexing to you when, come on. What's this really about? <laughs> isn't isn't it your freedom off at college with with this girlfriend, or what? And and so it's amazing how we don't always know what's going on. But but I I want to be shrewd and wise about where people are really being motivated out of. And so I think contextualizing ministry, depending on who we're dealing with, the context we're in, the influences they've they've absorbed are what it takes to do ministry wisely it's important to know what we're talking about it's important to love the, love the people that we seek to reach but then then emphasize things depending on